I'm talking today about the craft of biography, and I want to talk out of my own workshop. I write literary biographies, that is, the lives of persons who were themselves writers. But what I will say of this kind of biography really applies to biographies of all sorts, of generals, of statesmen, of athletes, or of movie stars. What we have to remember is that each biography demands its own treatment, its own kind of research, and that there are many kinds of biography. There are those great big compendium biographies where the book bulges with facts and quotations and with the t full texts of letters like Boswell's famous life of Dr. Johnson. There is the biographical portrait in which the details have been pared down and the subject is treated uh, very briefly with concision and neatness and is seen mainly sitting in the foreground as he would be, he or she would be sitting in a painted portrait. And there's the biography in which the writer sorts and sifts and seeks to find a special form, the particular form suitable to the particular life that he is writing. When such a form is found, when the materials are treated with economy and style, then we may say that we have a biography that's a work of art. Other biographies, the majority, tend to be documentaries. Desmond McCarthy, the English critic, said once that a biographer is an artist who is on oath. And by this, I suppose he meant that unlike any other kind of artist, the biographer is bound to tell the truth. Joseph Conrad once made a significant remark, which we can apply to biography, when he said, the dead can live only with the exact intensity and quality of the life imparted to them by the living. Now, this is a profound truth. A biographer, no less than a painter, paints a portrait seen through his own eyes. This means that there is always room for a number of biographies of the same subject, and that in a sense there is no such thing as a definitive biography. I've said I will talk out of my biographical workshop, but I'm mindful of the fact that few persons want to listen to the sound of the hammer or the chisel. They prefer to see the finished work. No one asks for the shavings along with the carving, the palette with the painting, the half-scrawled pages, and the infinite little scribbles with the printed book. I must therefore not take too much advantage of my opportunity, that is the opportunity to talk shop in public, but my task as I see it is to tell you a little, and perhaps not too much, about my own problems, my own enthusiasms in doing my daily work. I think we must recognize first that most persons would rather read biographies than be told how they are written. A reader takes it for granted that the biographer is normally a sane and dependable individual. He assumes that his story is going to be an honest story. And what readers want are facts. They want everything to hang together even though most lives don't really hang together. And they want logic and chronology 
and they want a life that's interesting, and they want it written with a certain amount of vigor and verve and interest. Now, I believe that most readers would prefer rather to hear about the poet's workshop or the novelist's workshop rather than the biographer's. These writers, the novelist, the poet, can talk of the imaginative process and the creative process. Biographers talk, on the whole, largely about how they gathered the facts and how they reported the facts. The biographer is a recorder of facts and dates, if he can discover them. But he's also a haunted craftsman, even when he's being terribly prosaic. He happens to be that strange person, an individual possessed in a way, by the ghost of another, whether it's someone who lived long ago or who's still alive. The reader relishes biography, I think, not for its process or its skills, because it's the very, but because it's the very stuff of life. And that's why Lytton Strachey called biography the most humane of all the branches of the art of writing, for it deals with all that's closest to us, people as they are or as they were, the greatness and littleness of the human condition, its weaknesses, its strength, and all in a manner which reflects a natural and human curiosity to discover what lies on the other side of the backyard fence, how someone else's garden is arranged. The difference between a biographer and a novelist should be fairly obvious. The novelist is free to imagine anything he pleases. The biographer must be imaginative also, but he must not imagine his materials. His imagination must lie in the telling of his story. His is what we might call the constructive, the organizing imagination. But the telling must leave the materials unaltered. The biographer is always a slave of his documents. Some biographers, of course, are guilty of trying to invent facts when none can be found. But they usually give the reader warning. Be sure to watch for the word doubtless, or the phrase may well have been, or those words apparently or seems to be. These usually usher in passages of fiction in biography. But even then, it more often than not, is speculation based on some shreds of data. It's what we might call intelligent surmise. I come back to the view that readers and sometimes critics of biography tend to assume they're reading life itself. They're not inclined to inquire how the biographer arrived at his story. They don't like footnotes particularly, and they don't look at the little, uh, the various sourcings and very few understand that the biography has really been assembled like a mosaic, artfully, out of little bit, bits and pieces, fragments left by humans, often casually during their pilgrimage through this world. A letter, a diary, a piece of lace, an autograph, an anecdote, a bank check, all the little tangible things which remain in odd corners, separated from the human being who was a part of them so long as he lived. Once he's gone, these objects become inanimate. And into these, the biographer tries, by arrangement, research, style, narrative art, and by evoking an atmosphere, to breathe life again and to fathom what 
James, Henry James called the visitable past, and Van White Brooks the usable past, and Willa Cather more pessimistically the incommunicable past. From the moment we cross the threshold of the biographer's workshop, there's much to be said about these problems. There is the choice of subject, a very complex psychological affair, the quest for material, the Sherlock Holmesing in the library, the relation of the literary biography to the literary work, in a word, to criticism. There's the question of the uses of psychoanalysis in literary biography, well, in any kind of biography. And finally, there's the large question of time itself, how to make the reader hear again the ticking of old clocks, the ticking that we hear today but to which others listened long ago, the murmur of voices in rooms of the past, the whole sense of being and moving with the person whose life is being assembled in words and in the pages of a book. I will try briefly to say a, a little about each of these stages in the writing of the biography. Subject, quest, criticism, psychoanalysis, time. The biographer's relation to his subject. This, I said a moment ago, is a very complex psychological affair. I speak here of the biographer who writes a biography of his own choice, not an official assigned commemorative biography. Obviously, when there's been a choice, some preference, some hidden force operates to attract the biographer to one subject rather than to another. It may be a strong sympathy for the subject. This is usually the case. It may also be a strong dislike, a dislike so strong that the individual feels he must write a book about it. It can hardly be a neutral feeling. Often the sympathy or the dislike may be so pronounced as to ruin any possibility of genuine truth. The biographer in such circumstances may write a eulogy instead of a biography or create one of those debunking volumes which used to be popular some years ago. You can see what difficulties, a goodly number of them unconscious, reside in the simple matter of choice of subject. I think a fascinating little study could be written to show how often biographers fancy themselves to be their subjects and how much in their identification and idealization, they strain to alter a bit of the subject's physiognomy, to trim a mustache or darken an eyebrow, or perhaps to do a little plastic surgery on the nose or the chin in order to achieve a countenance pleasing to themselves. On this question of the eulogy biography, Lytton Strachey wrote certain memorable lines. With us, he said, the most delicate and humane of all the branches of the art of writing has been relegated to the journeymen of letters. We do not reflect that it is perhaps as difficult to write a good life as to live one. And he went on to speak in a passage that's often quoted of those two fat volumes with which it is our custom to commemorate the dead. Who does not, who does not know them, he said, with their ill-digested masses of material, their slipshod style, their tone of tedious panegyric, their lamentable lack of style, of selection, of detachment, of design. They are as familiar as the cortege of the undertaker and wear the same air of slow, funereal barbarism. And Strachey urged biographers to maintain their freedom of spirit. And another way of saying this, I suppose, might be that the biographer must try to know himself 
before he seeks to know the life of another, for he may mingle too much of his own life with that of his subject. And this leads us to a very pretty paradox. The biographer must appraise and uh, recount the life of another by becoming that other person, and yet he must scrupulously avoid refashioning that person in his own image. Biographers, like their, su like their subjects, are all too human. They do not possess that omniscience which enables them to see to the very bottom of their own hearts and minds while unraveling the riddle of the heart and mind of another. Strachey's answer to this may be found in his statement that a biographer can only lay bare the facts of the case as he understands them. This may seem like a truism, but it's the only possible answer. The biographer's understanding of the subject will depend on his capacities as well as his data. A biographer, in other words, can work only by the light of his own intelligence, his talents, his resources. The greater his grasp of reality, the more real his portrait. The portrait that will emerge, like a painter's, can only be his vision, his arrangement, his picture. Well, the subject's chosen. The next step is to gather the material. The biographer always assumes that he must find out everything that the past will yield. No secret is too secret. No locked drawer in an old desk is too sacred. Reminiscence of widow or mistress, of husband or lover, cannot be ignored, although proper and searching skepticism must be maintained. Love letters are sought as if they were precious stones. The more love letters, the better even though we must remind ourselves that such letters often retain more feeling than fact, much of it starry-eyed, sometimes a good deal of fancy. There's the great search for the rarity, the lost volume, the bundle of documents in the trunk, the contents of an old attic, the hidden things amid the clutter, the invasion of old pigeonholes, the assault upon dead privacies to illuminate living truth. This is a struggle to wrest secrets from time with deep moral questions involved as to where reticence ends and keyhole peeping begins, where and with literary executors to bar the way and widows and friends to tell the biographer they know exactly what the deceased would be thinking if the deceased were still alive. And then there are those masses of papers, the 16,000 letters written by Dickens, or a sim similar number by Henry James, which has fallen my lot to edit and read, to read and edit, or the endless journals of Thoreau, the creation of entire libraries to house documents, Hyde Park with its millions of pieces of paper of the era of Roosevelt, or that other and more recently established library in Missouri with its mementos of a presidency, not to speak of the Kennedy Library being built in Boston, or the contemplated House of Documents in Texas. Several tons of paper arrived at the Houghton Library when the Thomas Wolfe Archive was acquired by Harvard. What's the biographer to do with tons of paper? And we seem in our acute consciousness of history to leave nothing to chance. Radio transcripts, tape recordings, kinescopes, even recorded telephone calls. What is the modern biographer to do when he has a modern subject? How can he defend himself against such a crushing weight of paper, against mountains of documents? Boswell boasted that he used his documents for his life of Johnson in full, 
He said, instead of melting down my materials into one mass and constantly speaking in my own person, I produce wherever it is in my power Johnson's own minutes, letters, or conversations, being convinced that this mode is more lively and will make my readers better acquainted with him. Very true, and particularly when we deal with so lively and stubborn a mind and wit as Johnson's. Diaries and letters, intimate table talk can give us a warm sense of intimacy with the past, but the modern biographer has a particular dilemma. Johnson, after, after all, had no typewriter, no tape recorder. Faced with great masses of material, the modern biographer must, as I see it, do the exact opposite of Boswell. He must melt down his materials or be smothered by them. There's no alternative. The sole reason for a writer's claiming our attention sufficiently to warrant the writing of his life, his life as creator, is that he has possessed a distinctive voice, a style, and a temperament. And the literary biography must be the story of that style and that voice. Put to this test, many literary biographies, I think, would fail of their mark. If the London life of Robert Browning is written in this fashion, for instance, it would record merely the, a healthy, moderate, and seemingly dull individual who dines in many houses, speaks platitudes, and seems to have no vestige of the romantic aura of his youth. His outward life during the late years seems to have given no inkling of his other self, the poetic self, the genius who at his desk created the poems by which we know him. The life of the artist, the real life of the literary artist, is to be found mainly in his work. There was a time when it was difficult to seek out that life since the biographer found himself struggling between what was real and what the writer had imagined. Today, the literary biographer has at his disposal delicate instruments with which to seek out the emotions that prompted literary endeavor, to discover the face behind the mask, behind the creative mask. Psychology, and in particular, certain of the concepts of psychoanalysis, the exploration of the unconscious, make possible a better understanding of the emotions. By this I do not pretend that a biographer should psychoanalyze his subject. He isn't qualified to do this usually. And even if he were, he could not, for he does not have the living person to work with. I do feel, however, that the biographer no longer can evade the meaning psychology has given to certain human relations. The attention it pays to the emotions to, and to motivation and to action. Old biographies trace ancestries for many pages in order to show the familial evolution of a given artist and guess freely at inherited traits. Today we may still trace the ancestry because it is interesting and relevant, but we know that the childhood environment and early relationship are determining factors in the given personality. And we seek out the early experiences for what they may tell us about the artist's later development. Again, if we find a slip of the pen in a given letter, we no longer shrug our shoulders and treat it as a mere accident. Freud has taught us that such slips sometimes illuminate an inner state of mind. I could multiply examples by which the biographer can lend a sympathetic ear to the teachings of the psychoanalytic school. For biography and psychoanalysis meet on common ground. Both are concerned with man as a creator and as a user of symbols. And 
When we function as critics, we trace in a literary work its recurrent themes, its word patterns, its ethical values, the choices made, the manner in which the victory is given to one side or to another, the writer's tragic or comic vision, the use of his energies of art. And we are tracing also the dynamics of the personality and the quality of his temperament. We're closer to the inner man and the inner world out of which creation or action, out of which passion came. Biography has for too long treated the lives of the great as if they were totally external matters. And not long ago, literary research tended to confine itself largely to source hunting as if creative artists lived their lives in libraries. I have left myself, I see, very little time for the final stages of the five I enumerated. Subject, quest, criticism, psychoanalysis, and lastly, time. Of time, perhaps I need say only a few words. It belongs to the writing of the life. Once the quest is over and the data has been critically examined and analyzed, then the biographer must find the words which will express the essence of the life that has been studied. And at this moment, he must reckon most with time. How in the welter of material, amid the multitudinous months and days of another man's life, is the biographer to restore the sense of the passage of time, to bring sunshine into old rooms and look out upon our crowded streets and see in them carriages of another day and slower moving, ladies and gentlemen, in old time costumes. About this sense of the past which all biographers must cultivate, a great deal could be said, and also about the great difficulty in the writing of the biography to give the reader the sense of time passing, of the subject's growth and aging, and all with only language to help us. Biographers must read themselves into a past from which they uh, must then return to the present in order to write their story. They are looking at the past from the here and now. By telling us the true facts, said Virginia Woolf, by sifting the little from the big and shaping the whole so that we perceive, perceive the outline, the biographer does more to simula stimulate the imagination than any poet or novelist save the very greatest. For few poets and novelists are capable of that high degree of tension which gives us reality, said Mrs. Woolf. But she added, almost any biographer, if he respects facts, can give us much more than another single fact to add to our collection, he can give us the creative fact, the fertile fact, the fact that suggests and engenders. Of this too, there is certain proof. For how often, when a biography is read and tossed aside, some scene remains bright, some figure lives on in the depths of the mind, and causes us, when we read a poem or a novel, to feel a start of recognition, as if we remembered something we had known before. A biographer is grateful when he hears a novelist say such things. It reinforces his own feeling that when he has penetrated to the heart of his materials, he can throw open a window on life, and thereby open it on life itself. The views and vistas of biography, and of literary biography in particular, are endless, and the process of gaining such vistas can be summed up, it seems to me, in three words. Understanding sympathy, illumination. A biographer must understand, he must have sympathy for his subject, and he must illuminate. This is Leon Adel.